Initially, I had titled this sermon, Walking by Faith. Uh, If you've got an outline, you'll see that uh, that title has changed to How Are You Walking? And the reason it's changed is there's more at work here than just walking by faith. The Bible talks about walking in the spirit. It talks about walking in the truth. It talks about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so what we're looking at today is Paul is calling the church at Colossae and us to walk in the same way that we received Christ. So we're going to read from Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Hear now God's word. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. From time to time we all need to evaluate our lives. And when the Bible talks about how we're living, it often substitutes the word walk. Now that way of speaking is still common today because we hear about people who walk the walk rather than merely talk the talk. When people say that, they mean that someone either lives or doesn't live in a way that's consistent with what they say they believe, or they're living in a hypocritical way, and they would say to others, do as I say, not as I do. Today I want to invite you to consider with me the question, how are you walking? How are you walking? The question, how are you walking, has taken on added significance for me recently. It has been nearly eight weeks since I had a bicycle accident and broke my right hip, requiring a total hip replacement. And in the days after surgery, I had physical therapists who came to our home and they followed me around. They'd be right behind me and I'd be walking and they'd be watching me from behind. And it's a little bit unnerving to have someone walking behind you and staring at your backside. And um, they were looking to see if I was favoring one side or the other, if I was keeping good balance, if I was turning my foot out and rotating my hip out in a way that might cause a dislocation. So they were doing this for my good. They were, in effect, asking me, how are you walking? They came out for my good. And so since having hip surgery, I'm much more aware of how I'm walking. In fact, I'm constantly aware of how I'm walking. I don't want to develop bad habits. I don't want to develop a limp. And so I'm constantly thinking, how am I walking? And with the physical therapist, it's heel, toe, heel, toe, baby steps as you turn, all this kind of thing. And then eventually that muscle memory kicks in and you don't have to think about everything single step, it becomes second nature. We develop muscle memory and it enables us to walk without thinking about each step. When we're learning to walk either as a a baby or someone who's recovering from an injury or surgery, we start with baby baby steps. We start by putting one foot in front of the other, landing on the heel, following through to the toe, and eventually it becomes second nature. In my high school, there was a girl who was an accomplished dancer. She had studied ballet and tap and jazz, and not only that, her family liked to go ballroom dancing. Her parents wanted to go polka dancing, and she wanted to go, but she needed a partner, and 
Apparently, I was seen as a likely candidate. All that I knew about polka dancing is that it was often accompanied by accordions and beer. You know, roll out the barrel, we'll have a barrel of fun. That was what I knew about polka dancing. And in order to prepare for an evening at the dance hall, I was invited to her house and with her parents present for a dance lesson along with her parents in a large open room in their home. It was very awkward at first as I stared at my feet and tried not to step on hers. I kept counting to three. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. And eventually I started to get the hang of it. I began to move somewhat gracefully around the room and it was actually enjoyable. I'm reminded of the words of Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit, as some translations put it. There's a song with a traditional folk melody that says, Dance then, wherever you may be. I am the Lord of the dance, said he, and I'll lead you all wherever you may be, and I'll lead you all in the dance, said he. So when Paul instructs the Colossians and so us to walk in the same way that we received Christ, he's encouraging them to continue walking by faith, to continue walking by the Spirit or in the Spirit, because no one receives Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, and to continue walking in the truth. We recently did a study of 1 John, and we saw that phrase, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Earlier in Colossians, in chapter 1, verse 10, we saw that we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So this phrase, walk in this way, is important. It's a way of describing how we are to live in Christ. So there's a way to walk or live which the Bible describes as walking by the Spirit or walking by faith, walking in the truth, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now many people come to the Bible as a guidebook. They're looking for instructions to help them live what some have called their best life now. And so they search for moral commands. What will help me to have a better life right now? But if you start reading Paul's letter to the Colossians, you'll search in vain for such commands. At least in the first chapter and up to chapter 2, verse 6, there are no imperatives that I've been able to find. The first imperative in Colossians is here in verse, chapter 2, verse 6, related to how we are to walk. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's the imperative. Walk or live a certain way, namely in the same way that you received Christ Jesus the Lord. In the first chapter of this letter, the focus has been on the all-sufficiency of Jesus. Paul did not begin by telling his hearers to do something, but rather by showing them the glory of the only Son of God. He was seeking to help his original hearers and us to orient our life around the lordship of Jesus Christ. He refused to give five easy steps to make life go well or three principles to live a stress-free life. 
And so when we come to verse 6 of chapter 2, we finally encounter a command or an imperative. And the command is to walk or live in a certain way, namely the same way that you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now after giving that command, the Apostle Paul goes on to describe what it looks like in practical terms. In his description, he uses four phrases. These are Three of them are passive and one is active. These are participle phrases. And you may remember participles from English grammar classes. They're often translated as ing words, like being. And so here, it's um, having been rooted. It's a past participle, meaning that there's ongoing, an ongoing state as a result of past action. We have been rooted in Christ And we are being built up in him and being established in him. And then we come to one active phrase, abounding or overflowing in thanksgiving. So today we're considering this command to go on walking in Christ Jesus the Lord, just as you received him, and we'll consider what that looks like day by day. So we're looking first at the indicative and the imperative, and these are terms that you would learn in, if you're studying the Greek language, biblical Greek. Indicative is stating what is true. Imperative is what we're to do about it. So the indicative is what is true. The imperative is how are we to live in the light of this truth. And so in Colossians 1, he is stating the indicative, what is true. What's true is that Jesus Christ rules over all creation. He is head of the church. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So that's what Paul gives us as a focus. Jesus Christ is the great banner over all. He is Lord over all creation. He's head of the church. Our lives must be oriented around him. He goes on in the next verses to show that Jesus is God in the flesh who has come to reconcile us back to God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Jesus is Lord of all creation, head of the church. He has come in the flesh, taken on human flesh, fully God, fully human, to reconcile us back to God. And then we see in chapter 2, verse 3, that in Christ are stored all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, So that's what Paul wants us to know. This is who Jesus is. And then, in chapter 2, verse 5, we see that the Apostle Paul is present with these believers in spirit. Now, he wasn't with them physically. He was in prison. But he says, 
Though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So because of all those things, because of who Jesus is as Lord of all creation, head of the church, because he is God in the flesh who's reconciled us to God, because in him are stored all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and because the Apostle Paul is with the believers in spirit, therefore believers must walk in the way that they received Christ. So there was a danger in the early church as there is today that people will be deluded or led astray by plausible arguments. And because of that danger, Paul issues a strong word of exhortation. He says, though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. Now, I'll be with you in spirit is perhaps what the person says who's leaving Ohio for the winter and headed to Florida. I'm going to be gone for a while. I won't be with you in body. I'll be with you in spirit. And those left in the frozen north mutter under their breath, yeah, right, sure you will. But the Apostle Paul is not off on vacation in some tropical paradise. He's writing this letter from prison. And he says in chapter 4, verse 3, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. So Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel. And he cannot be with his brothers and sisters in Christ in person. But he says, I'm with you in spirit. He wrote something similar to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5, he said, It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul is using the fact that he's present with them spiritually as a motivation. Knowing that someone is with us is a powerful motivation. If you feel like you're alone, if you feel like no one's watching, you can be tempted to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. We need to recognize that we are never alone, that God is always with us by his spirit, and that believers are even with us in the spirit. We see in the Old Testament a story about Gehazi, Elisha's servant. It's a tragic story because Elisha had been used by God to minister healing to Naaman who was dealing with leprosy. And Naaman had come with 10 talents of silver. A talent is 75 pounds. It's a weight of measure. So 10 talents is 750 pounds of silver. That's what Naaman came to offer this person who would minister healing to him. And Elisha says, nope, this is a gift from God. Take your money back with you. Well, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, thinks, I'm not missing out on that. I was involved in this too. So he runs after Naaman and he makes up a story. And he says that my master has sent me to say, there have now just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim 
two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two festal garments. Naaman says, be pleased to accept two. You ask for one, I'm going to give you two. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two festal garments and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. So he slips them in quietly so Elisha wouldn't see. And then he sent the men away and they departed and he went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? He said, your servant went nowhere. But Elisha said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned out from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. The spirit, the heart of Elisha was with Gehazi and he didn't recognize it. Having someone with us is a powerful motivation. Those of you who are runners or cyclists who train out in the weather, you know this. If there's someone with you, running alongside of you, riding beside of you, it can be a strong encouragement. Perhaps there's a little friendly, healthy competition or Negatively, when we're alone and we think no one is watching, it's easy to compromise and give in to temptation and fall into sin. In Genesis 2, 18, the Lord, after creating all things, said it's, and saying that everything was good, he said, it's not good that the man should be alone. And so it's important that we recognize that we're never alone. God is with us. He sees how we're walking when we think we're walking in secret. And sometimes other believers might have that revealed to them as well. And so Paul uses this as a motivation. Because I'm with you in spirit, therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So throughout scripture, um, different ones received Christ in different ways. So the command here is, as you, or just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And so we can think about the ways that different people received Christ in Scripture. The guards at the sentencing of Jesus says they received him literally with blows. They received him violently. Mark 14, 61 through 65, Jesus remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witness do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover, and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to see him prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. It's the same Greek word. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Zacchaeus received him joyfully as king and Lord. When Jesus called to Zacchaeus, who was up in the tree, and said, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. And Zacchaeus said to the Lord, once he got to his house, I restore all that I've taken. I restore it more than once. He recognized 
that in receiving Jesus, he was receiving the King and Lord of all. So if you've received Christ Jesus for who he is, you've received him as Lord and Master. To receive Christ Jesus as Lord is to acknowledge and welcome his rule and reign over your heart and life. It's to submit all of life to his kingship. So we need to recognize that we're not alone, that the Spirit is with us, that God is present with us at all times, and that sometimes others can be with us in the Spirit. Now, some of you parents may want to speak to your children this way, and you might say something like, when you're not going to be with me physically, I'll be with you in spirit. Just a little reminder, even though I'm not with you in body, I'm with you in spirit, so live in a way that honors the Lord and brings joy to me. That's what Paul was doing here, I believe, saying that even though I'm not with you in body, I'm with you in spirit, so walk in the manner in which you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Jesus and his message come to us as a gift. It's a gift that must be received. If it's not received, it's of no benefit to us. As we think about giving and receiving Christmas gifts, you can wrap them up, you can put them under the tree, you can hand them to someone, but if they don't unwrap them, if they don't receive that gift, it's of no benefit to them. The Jesus Christ is held out to us. He's offered it to us in the gospel as a gift, the greatest gift of all. But if we do not receive him, he is of no benefit to us. And there is only one way to receive Christ Jesus the Lord. In John 1, it says, As many as received him who believed on his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So receiving Jesus is trusting, banking our hope on him. As it says in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So saving faith involves knowledge, assent, and trust or reliance. The Protestant reformers recognized that there were three elements to saving faith. And they, in typical fashion, use Latin words like notitia. Notitia refers to the content of the faith and knowing those things that we believe. So we place our faith in something, or better, more appropriately, someone. In order to believe, we must know something about that someone who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is specific content that we must know in order to be saved we need to know the content of the gospel, that Jesus Christ took on human flesh, that he lived, that he died, he rose again, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. There's certain knowledge that we need to have in order to be saved. But there's more than that. There's a census. Think of intellectual assent or agreement. This is the, our conviction that the content of our faith is true. So you can know about the Christian faith and yet believe that it's not true. Lots of people know about the resurrection of Jesus, but they don't believe it really happened. Genuine faith says that the content, the notitia taught by Holy Scripture, is true. So faith involves intellectual assent, but it's more than that. Even the demons believe that God is one 
and they tremble because of it. So we must give intellectual assent to the truth of Scripture, but there's still more to saving faith than notitia or knowledge and a census or assent. There's a third element of saving faith, and that's the Reformers called it fiducia. It refers to personal trust and reliance. Knowing and believing the content of the Christian faith is not enough, for even the demons can do that. Faith is only effective or effectual if, knowing about and assenting to the claims of Jesus, one personally trusts in him alone for salvation. I'd like to illustrate that for you. This past week, we've been preparing for my father-in-law to move in with us later today. He is flying here from North Dakota, and we moved our bed across the hall to a different bedroom and decided to put it up on risers. If you're not familiar with risers, think of stilts. You're jacking something up. And um, the reason we did this was in order to store some additional things underneath the bed frame. Now, growing up, I slept in bunk beds with my twin brother. But there was always a ladder to get up to that top bunk. With our bed now on risers, I could almost use a ladder to get in and out of it. And so when Karen brought these risers home from the store, I examined them, and so I have some knowledge about their specific content. That's something like the reformers had in mind when they talked about notitia. There's specific content that we need to know. These risers are made out of a specific material. I understand that they've been engineered to support a certain amount of weight, and in my mind, I agree in assent to the fact that they should be able to support that amount of weight. That's similar to a census. I'm assenting or agreeing to the content. And then thirdly, until I climb up on the bed and demonstrate that I trust those risers to support me and I place my full weight down, I have not given evidence of fiducia or wholehearted reliance. When my mom was a young adult, she worked for a travel agency in Omaha, Nebraska, and she decided she wanted to take a trip to Hawaii. So she got on a plane and she flew there. But in her later years, she was afraid to travel by airplane. And I heard of an older woman who felt the same way and necessity required that she would travel by airplane and so she had family members get her on the plane at the departure site and other family members that were prepared to greet her and meet her when she got off the plane and when she arrived they asked about her flight and she replied, oh it was fine, I just never put my full weight down. Until we put our full weight down on Christ, we have not exercised the third element of saving faith, which is fiducia. We have to know a certain content about who Jesus is, what he's done. We have to agree that, yes, he lived, died, and rose again. And thirdly, we have to bank our hope on him, to rest in him alone for our salvation. That, together, is saving faith. But there's a great danger, and the danger is that having begun by faith, we might turn aside to works. Paul wrote to the Galatians, and he spoke with very strong words. He said, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So what he's addressing is that many are tempted to think that after receiving Christ, Jesus the Lord, by faith, that it's now up to us to live a moral life. We think that we have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, forgetting that what one person has observed, that namely we don't have any bootstraps. They think that they have to try harder to be a good person or a better person, to clean up their lives and get rid of all their bad habits. But Jesus didn't come to make us better. He came to make us new. So, yes, we work, but it is Christ in us. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So as we're seeking to walk in the same way that we received Christ, it takes effort. There is a conscious effort involved, but it's not you or me. It is the grace of God that is with us. God prepared beforehand good works for us. Ephesians 2.10 We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So before you ever came to trust in Jesus Christ, God prepared works for you to do, works of faith. And he calls you to keep walking the same way. There's a book with a title that I really like. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I want that to describe my life. And I pray that it describes yours too. That once you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, that you will keep walking in his direction. Having turned to Christ... Don't turn back to the world. Jesus said it's not possible. In Luke 9, 62, he said, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So how do we keep walking in this same way? How do we keep walking in the way that we received Christ Jesus the Lord? We're told these four different participle phrases. The first one is literally having been rooted or rhizomed. Now you may not be familiar with the word rhizome. I wasn't either a few years ago. But we ordered some plants from a mail order catalog and when they arrived it said these plants are rhizomes. Turns out what a rhizome is, it looks like a stick with hair on it. It didn't look very promising, but you stick that in the ground and by some miraculous work of God, that there's power in the plant and in the seed, it eventually grows. And so on the north side of our home, we have an abundance of lily of the valley that started out as these sticks with hair on them that looked like they wouldn't do anything. We have been rooted in Christ. We maybe didn't look like much when we first came to Christ. Our lives were maybe a great mess. 
but we have been rooted in Christ and we need to be continually reminded of where we are planted. That's why we come to the Lord's table regularly. It reminds us that our life is in Christ. Through his death and resurrection, we have life. We're rooted in him. And so we need to keep coming back to the fact that we have been rooted in Christ. And then the next phrase, that we're being built up. This happens in relationship. We are called to build one another up and encourage one another. And so God has ordained that we spend time with one another in the body of Christ. That we devote ourselves to gathering together. That we not forsake assembling with other believers. Whether that's in a small group or one-on-one meeting for discipleship. That we are being built up. That's what God desires for us. These are things that God wants to do to us that we would be built up in him. And the next phrase is that we would be established in the faith. This is that having our foundation set upon Jesus Christ, upon whom there is no other foundation that can be laid other than Jesus Christ. So these things, being rooted in Christ, being built up in him, being established in faith, these are all passive. These are the things that God intends to do to us And then the next phrase is active. It's what God wants to do through us. Namely, he wants to bring it about so that we would be abounding or literally overflowing with thanksgiving. Don't you want your life to be characterized by thanksgiving? I do. And the way we do that is by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us and for our salvation. We do it by being reminded of God's precious and very great promises and trusting that as God has shown grace to us in the past, God will continue to cause grace to flow into our lives in the future from the cross of Jesus Christ. So this last phrase, abounding in thanksgiving, is the one that should, as much as anything else, characterize followers of Christ, those who believe in Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like to keep walking in the way that we received Christ. It's to be a thankful people. And this has vertical and horizontal components to it. Thankful people are humble people in relation to God. They remain in awe of what God has accomplished for them in Christ. Proud people say, God, no, I can do it myself. Thank you very much. I don't need that death on the cross stuff. I'll figure it out on my own. Humble people are thankful people. They recognize I could never be saved in and of myself. I needed what Jesus Christ did for me. So there's a vertical component in relation to God. There's a horizontal component to thankfulness, thanksgiving. When we're overflowing with thanksgiving, we're not thinking highly of ourselves. We're quick to repent and to forgive and to love when we're overflowing with thanksgiving. When we're not overflowing with thanksgiving, when we're self-absorbed, when we're complaining, we're not the kind of person other people want to be around. And so God wants us to be characterized by an overflowing thankfulness. And that comes as we recognize the grace that we have received in Christ. Grace received results in gratitude. It overflows in thanksgiving. When we recognize that we are the recipients of grace, it automatically overflows. God, you are so good to me. 
I didn't deserve this, but you have shown grace to me in Jesus Christ. That's the mindset that we need, and that's the mindset that we're offered as we continue to walk in the way that we received Christ Jesus. This is a day-by-day process. In a moment, we're going to sing a song, an old Swedish hymn called Day by Day. It says this, day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. So help me, Lord, in every tribulation, so to trust your promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith's sweet consolation offered me within your holy word. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, ere to take as from a father's hand, one by one the days, the moment fleeting, till I reach the promised land. How are you walking today? I'm not going to be looking at you from behind to see how you're physically walking, but I want to look in your faces and say, how are you walking today? May the Lord empower us by his spirit to continue walking by faith, walking by his spirit, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. May God do that for his glory and for our greater joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have come in Jesus Christ to reconcile us to yourself, to give us life, to enable us to walk, to live in you, to walk by faith, to walk by the Spirit, to walk in a manner worthy of you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring that about as you have caused us to be rooted in Christ, as you have been our causing us to be built up in him and established in him. May we overflow with thanksgiving for your glory and our greater joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.